Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be there in just a moment. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be reading out of the... um, the English Standard Version, the ESV, that's what we usually use here, Um, Ephesians chapter 4. When I was in grade school, our Sunday afternoon routine was relatively the same no matter what week it was. Um, We would go to church, we would come home, we'd eat, probably take a nap, and then around 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, I can't remember what time it was, but it was always sometime around there, my parents would would leave the house and... um, they would come up to the church, or they would go up to the church there in Bridgeport, and they would get ready for the Sunday evening service. I don't know what they were doing, if it was worship practice or prayer or what. I guess I never asked, but they would always leave at about 4, 5 o'clock, and the second that they would leave, me and my brother, we would turn on the Sunday afternoon professional wrestling, okay? We always had to wait for my parents to leave because we weren't allowed to watch that, but um, again, they were raising little heathens, like I've told you before, so... So when after they left, we would turn on the professional wrestling, and then we would try out the moves on each other. I was the bigger brother, so I always got to, you know, win. It was awesome. But <clears throat> some of our favorites were like, you know, Sting. I don't know if any of you guys, if this is any of you guys remember this, but Sting and the Stinger Splash and the Scorpion Deathlock and um, Ric Flair and all of those guys. And so we would always kind of practice those things. And Um, One of the guys that, whether you watch wrestling, I don't watch it anymore, but because nobody told me that I can't now, so what's the fun in watching it now? But uh, um, one of the guys that you will all remember is, of course, Hulk Hogan, right? You guys all know Hulk Hogan, right? Raise your hand if you know who Hulk Hogan is, just so I know that we're all on the same page. Everybody knows Hulk Hogan. And um, every time he wrestled, it it followed the same script, the same storyline, okay? Um, They'd be up there, they'd be going back and forth, right? And then there'd be a point in the match where, where Hulk Hogan would start to get beat, right? And he'd get knocked down or he'd, you know, get knocked out or whatever, and he'd go to pin him and they'd get the one two, and then he'd lift an arm up, right? And, uh, and so the guy would beat on him a little bit more, and then one, two, and then he'd lift an arm up. And then, and then there's at some point in the match, it happened every single time that he had just had enough. You guys know what I'm talking about? And the guy would be beating on him or kicking him and punching him, and then Hulk Hogan, he would either like stomp his, you know, he'd start stomping, right? Or he'd start wagging his head and, and oh, you know, that bald top and that long hair would shake back and forth. And, and, and basically he's like stirring up that energy, like he's had enough, right? And then, and then the people would get real desperate, like, uh-oh, here comes, he's hulking out sort of thing. And so they'd start punching him even more and he'd shake more. And then he'd stand up and he'd give them the stare and then everybody would back up. You guys, if you've ever seen a Hulk Hogan match, this happened every single time. They'd back up, no. I don't want none of that, you know, because he's reached the point where he's going to operate at full strength, and you better look out. And then he would take care of business. The match would be over in like 30 seconds, and then he'd scream and yell at all the Hulkamaniacs, and he'd thank them for their excitement and all that stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? So this same scenario happens 
on a weekly basis at my house. I, I, when, when we play with, with my kids, they're always asking me to be the bad guy, right? I have to be the villain, and so, so they're all the little five heroes around, and so I have to be either a dragon or a monster or, you know, whatever villain that they have chosen for me that day because they want to have somebody that they can kick and punch and fight and so they do that, and, and it follows the same storyline where they'll finally take me to the ground and they'll be on top of me. Whenever you're wrestling with kids, you always got to lay down flat because they'll jump on your stomach and, and everything else. So you got to lay down flat so they're on your back and stuff. And um, uh, so I'm laying there, and they're beating me up, and I'm dying. Ugh, I'm almost dead, right? And they're finishing me off. And then every time we follow the same scenario, and they love it, um, I'll start breathing really hard, right, when you're laying on the ground. Just that, right? And uh, they're like, oh, no, hit him harder, hit him harder, hit him harder. And then, and then little Lydia, she's like, oh, no. And then you start, like, in those real slow, deliberate movements, like pick your arm up and on the ground, right? And then the other one, on the ground. And you start slowly getting up, and they're like, ah! And then, you know, it's on because you, you get them. And then you take them all down and do like a big five-kid dog pile with dad on the top until everybody screams, oh, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. You know, you know what I'm talking about. But, but they know that when I, I finally stand up, they're in trouble. Because they know that daddy at full strength is impossible to stop, right? It's not going to be that forever, but, but it is now. Daddy at full strength is impossible to stop. I've been reading a book lately called Catch the Wind of the Spirit, and, and a lot of this series that we're starting today is going to be influenced by this book. Um, but as I've been reading this book, I feel like I can, I can feel the Holy Spirit inside of me starting that hard, deliberate breath, that, or that foot stomp. You know, that, okay, this is enough. Those slow, deliberate movements. And it's as if the Holy Spirit, while, while I've been reading this and, and studying for this series, it's as if the Holy Spirit has been whispering to me, asking me these questions. Chris, imagine the impact of a believer at full strength. Imagine the impact a believer will have at full strength. And as, we've been, as I've been thinking about this and praying about this, I, I, I had this thought, a church at full strength is impossible to stop. A church at full strength is impossible to stop. Before we get started here um, in, in laying the foundation for this entire series, um, I want to just pray. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to just come and, and just be with us. Can we do that? Can we bow our heads and can we pray for this series? Lord Jesus um, I pray that you would just give us the, the gift of your Holy Spirit fresh and new here today. Uh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir up our hearts. I pray that you would stir up our souls. I pray that you would just ignite that thing inside of us where we do that, that deliberate breath, where we do that foot stomp, and we say, Lord, with your strength, with your power, we want to rise up and be a people who are going to operate at full strength. Lord Jesus, let us get a glimpse at what a church at full strength looks like. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning's message is going to serve as an introduction to this series that we're calling Pillars. 
I believe that there are five pillars that Scripture gives us that effective, spirit-empowered ministry is built upon. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at these pillars. We're going to identify and we're going to discuss these five pillars. And in order for the church to operate at full strength, it must be a church that is built on all five pillars. It must be a church that stands on and depends on all five of these pillars. And so what we're going to do as, as this introductory message sets the foundation for where we're going, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 1 and get some context to identify um, why these five pillars are so valuable and why we need to be paying attention to them, especially in our church today. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, we're going to start there. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I is Paul in this. If you've done any study of the Bible, you know that Paul is the author of, of the book of Ephesians. And so so he says, um, I, Paul, the author of this book, which Ephesians was a letter that was written to the church of Ephesus, and it was a letter that was intended for the church there at Ephesus to be read there originally, but then to be circulated around to several other churches around the area. So it was, it was written in a way for uh, it, it to be distributed amongst the group of people. And Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison, and he's there in prison because he was preaching the gospel and spreading Christianity. And in this verse and in this book he's urging the believers and the churches to live up to the call that God has placed on their life he's saying look you have been called for something greater you've been called for something bigger live I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called we as believers and Paul was urging them in Ephesus to stop believing that God had designed them for average for ordinary and for to look like everybody else he was telling them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called verse 2 he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so here, at the, at the beginning of this chapter four, Paul is talking to the church and he's talking to the churches and he's calling for a spirit of unity. He's saying, hey, look, we have to operate as one here. Uh, one mind, walk in a manner worthy of your calling, but let's operate in a spirit of unity. I think that one of the reasons why church, churches don't operate at the full strength, at their full capacity, is because we spend way too much time fighting amongst other churches. We spend too much time fighting with other denominations. We, we believe a lot of times, we believe that our body, our local church, our denomination, our group of people is better than somebody else's body. And Paul says, look, there is one body, one body. Our mission is the same. Our goal is the same. Our God is the same is the same. Our baptism is the same. The spirit who guides is the same. And in this, we have secondary differences, don't we? 
You've been to other churches, right? How many of you have been to another church besides North Shore ever, right? It was a little different than the way we do things here. You've been to other churches that have other denominational backgrounds, right? They do things a, a little bit different. They, they, they handle things differently. We have stylistic differences. We have cultural differences, right? If you, um, we had that AIM team that went to uh, Costa Rica this last week. Their cultural differences in the way they did church is different than what it is here. It's just we have differences. There is a variation of stylistic differences amongst the churches here in Hastings, amongst the Bible-believing, Christ-preaching churches here in Hastings. We, we're different. There's stylistic differences, and we know that, right? Some people love North Shore because we wear jeans, right? Some people hate North Shore because we wear jeans, and we understand that, but we're not about what we wear, right? We're about who we serve, right? There's one God, there's one spirit, there's one baptism, right? There's one savior. Some people love North Shore because of our worship. Some people hate North Shore because of our style of worship, right? But it's not how, but who we worship that matters, right? It is about Jesus. Jesus is the center, Jesus is the goal. <clears throat> Some people like our programs here at North Shore. Some people hate our programs here at North Shore. Some people like some of the programs here, and some people hate some of the programs here, and so they're kind of conflicted. But the reality is Jesus is the goal of every single one of our programs that we do. Everything that we do, every program, every equip class, every um, life group, everything that we do with the breakfast on down is about Jesus. Jesus is the goal. And sometimes people look at that and think, I don't like that. I don't think that works. I don't think that's effective. That's okay. We're able to have those opinions. But the reality is there is one God and we do everything we can to put ourselves in a position to serve him well and through our program to lift him up high so that everybody that is in our programs know what we think, what we believe, and what we teach about Jesus, that he is the one and only way, right? That's, that's the one. That's what we can agree upon. A fractured church will never operate at full strength. And we know that in the local body. We know that in, in the local church of North Shore, our, our church here. We know that if there is fractures within the church, if there's fractures within the, the, the vision and the goal, we know that we're not going to be effective. But, but the reality is there has been a fracture in the large church because there's been too much fighting and too much conflict and too much this way, this way, this way, and there's not been enough love and humility and grace and compassion and fighting for the one God that we can all agree upon. A fractured church will never operate at full strength. So in verse 1 through 6, Paul speaks to the church. He's talking to the group. He's talking to the churches. And then it seems in verse 7, he switches focus a little bit and moves from the group to the individual within the group. He's still talking to the church, but he's not talking to the corporate group. He's talking to the individual within the church. And this is what he says here in verse 7. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. But grace was given to each one of us individually, personally, and intimately. This, what's, this is what makes the gospel so appealing to me. Because God's grace is for me. It's not just for us, right? 
God's grace is for me. But grace was giving, but grace was given to each one of us. And here's, here's the difference. It's the difference between getting a package sent to your place of business, right? You're getting a package placed on your desk at work, and it's addressed to whatever company, whatever group, whatever you know, place you work for, and a package delivered to your home with your name on it, right? Grace was given to each one of us. God's grace has given to you the package that he has delivered has your name on it, not just your church. That's really, really good news. So the grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And this is where we have to really look and pay attention to what Scripture is saying. Because oftentimes we get ourselves into trouble in assuming that every single Scripture that speaks about grace is saying the same thing. Rarely do we look at verses like verse 7 within the context that it is written, but I really want us to pay attention to the context here today. Often when scripture talks about grace and God's grace given to us, we look at it in the light of uh, what we have to deal with, right? It seems like God's grace always comes from a place of negativity. Like um, whenever we experience something bad in our life, then we have to depend on God's grace. Like God's grace is there as as like a, a defense mechanism when bad things happen in our life. If there's sickness in our life, well, Boy, we're just praying that God's grace is going to be sufficient to, to give you um, what you need to make it through, right? We're always depending on God's grace as a deterrent from the bad. There's relationship pain in your life. Uh, well, uh, brother, sister, we're just going to depend. We're going to ask God's grace to be there for you, that, that his grace is sufficient, right? You lose a job. Well, you know, his grace and the measure that he pours out on his grace um, but Paul is talking about something altogether different here. And I think that's in, important to make this distinction. I think that it's important for us to identify this difference because it's the difference between a passive, reactionary, defensive, survival mode type of church and an aggressive, proactive, offensive, forcefully advancing kind of church. We have to understand that God's grace isn't just reserved for uh, a help me through the bad times mentality, help me through the bad times moments. This is vital for us to understand that God gives his grace in a measure so that we as a people and we as a church can be aggressive in advancing the kingdom, that we can be aggressive in what we think, and we can be aggressive in what we believe. We can be aggressive for God. God's grace isn't just a defensive mechanism. It can be an offensive element as well. So verse 8, let's keep going. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. I want to read that part again. If you're reading your Bible, if you've got your Bible there in front of you and it's open, this, this little line here is kind of indented different, and it's separated and set apart. Um, and, and so I want us to really pay attention to that. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Some translations say the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. 
So let's stop here for just a second because I believe that this is the key to everything that we're going to talk about here over the next couple of weeks. Um, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. I don't think we pay attention enough to the gifts that Jesus gives. I, I don't think that we uh, uh, give them their proper place and their proper weight. If Jesus were to come into my life physically, he were to come into my house and he were to give me a gift, it would be something that I would hold on to, that I would cherish, and I would wonder for my whole life, why did he give me this, right? He gave gifts. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In my Bible, I have this gave gifts part highlighted with a question mark. Like, what is this talking about? What is going on here? That's what we're going to discuss here in just a little bit. So what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's painting a wonderful picture for the original listeners. The original readers, the original recipients of this scripture, of this letter, would have fully understood and would have known immediately what this line is referencing to because it's pointing to something cultural that they all know about. And so I, I want to tell you kind of what this looks like. This passage is referring to um, the way the ancient world would celebrate a military victory. And so we have to understand sort of the history of it, to understand uh, what Paul is really saying. So, so what would happen when a Roman general would return from many months of war after winning a great victory for Rome is that they would have this victory parade. And, and this parade would go through one of those triumphal gates. Many times that they, they would erect a brand new triumphal gate for, for the general or for the captain to march through in this victory parade. Oftentimes this victory parade would, would go through the streets of Rome and it would be about a two and a half mile long route that they would go through. And um, the march would always begin the same way and it always followed sort of the same structure. It would always begin with the foreign captives. Those people of high status, the, the, uh, the defeated army's generals, the defeated army's king, the defeated army's captains, those guys of high status, the nobles of that kingdom, they were uh, placed in cages, right, transportable jails. They were placed in those cages, placed on carts, and they were wheeled through the town first. They were the very first float, right, on this victory parade. And so everybody in Rome got to line the streets and look at them and watch them as they were uh, led down the streets of Rome. Following the captives that were in cages were the armies, the captured armies, and they would walk along in chains. They would, they, they would have torn and tattered, tattered clothing. They would look, you know, downcast and, and defeated and, and many times wounded. But these men, the armies, would be um, taken through on this victory parade next. Oftentimes, they would try to include the most unique people that they could find. They would try to include the people that many of the Roman citizens wouldn't um, really be familiar with, people with different colored hair, different colored clothing, or different colored skin, different things like that. If they had any sort of uh, a unique presence about them, they would make sure that these people were on the line. If they were really tall or really short, they would make sure that um, these people were seen by the Roman citizens. And in this victory parade, there were thousands of Roman citizens that would line up just to see this spectacle. So after the 
after the defeated generals in their cages and after the, the armies were being marched along, then came a display of weapons and armor that the Roman that the Roman armies would have captured, um, some gold, some silver, some of the, the statues and, and some of those unique elements, some of the paintings that they had captured from different castles and different uh, um, places like that, different homes. Then after all of that, the, the senators, the magistrates, some of the important people in Rome would begin to come through next in this victory parade. They were all dressed in their prestigious garb, and it was just a really just a really beautiful thing to watch. After the, the magistrates and the nobles came the general, came the captain, the most important guy in the parade. He would come next, and he would be carried along in a chariot um, pulled by four horses. He would be wearing a, 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 like a toga, like a robe and purple, and he would have the, the laurel wreath on his head. And this was just the moment for him to soak everything in. This was his moment. He would be, you know, he'd have gold chains around his neck, and this was, this was a big deal. There would be music. There would be people dancing and celebrating and singing his praise the whole time. He was the, the, the captain. He was the general. He was the one responsible for the victory parade that was going on. After the general were, were some of his captains, some of his generals, um, they would wear red robes and, and they would uh, ride alongside the general on their horses and their horses would be, have their mane all decorated and braided and everything. And it was just this royal moment. After that, they would bring in all the treasure. Carts and carts full of gold and silver and just wonderful treasures that they would cart along this victory path so that everybody could see all the amazing things that they had brought back. At this time, they'd bring many um, exotic animals, elephants, different things like that along the parade as well. And so this parade, this celebration would usually take up to three days. And so throughout the time of festivities, there was games, there was entertainment, there was singing, there was large, elaborate banquets. And when the celebration was over, the general, the guy in the cart pulled by four horses, the most important guy, the guy that was in charge of all of this, after the celebration was over, what he would do is he would take the treasure that they had, that they had captured. Some of it went to the king. Right? But then he had opportunity to dole out some of the others. And so he would take that treasure that he had captured and he would give money away to those who had served well in his army. Okay? The gifts that the general gave were extremely generous. All of this stuff, he was extremely generous with it. And oftentimes he would make some of those who served well in his army instantly wealthy and it would change not just their lives but their generations for their, their family for generations to come it would make them instantly wealthy at the generosity of the treasures that he would give and so when paul referred to jesus ascending on high leading captives in his train and giving gifts to men what he was doing is he was referencing this image he was referencing this victory parade and so as we think of who Jesus is, I want you to, to, to transport yourself back into ancient Rome and imagine what that must have looked like. Think of what Jesus is. Think of how Jesus has saved us. The captives that Jesus conquered were the ones who held humanity captive to sin. Jesus 
however, conquered everything, right? Jesus was victorious over Satan, death, hell, and sin. Jesus was victorious over those things who had enslaved mankind, right? Jesus took those that had been our captors and he made them captives, leading them in a train of captives, leading him in his victory parade, letting everybody know who the conqueror, who the king, who the champion, and who the savior is. What an amazing image that Paul puts together in just two lines, right? He's painting this picture of who Jesus is. And so we consider what Paul is saying. He's saying that Jesus had to come down. He had to live a perfect life. He had to give himself as a sacrifice for our sin when he died on the cross. And when he arose victoriously three days later, he defeated Satan, he defeated sin, he defeated death, he defeated hell, he ascended into heaven. And very clearly, you see the imagery of a conquering hero, a mighty warrior, a mighty general, a captain, and a king, worthy of great honor. It says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So Jesus, victorious in battle, victorious in the spiritual battle, is according to his abundance, his abundance, his extreme generosity, offering gifts to men. And he's offering gifts that are going to dramatically change their future. He's offering gifts that have the power to not only affect them, but to affect their kids generation after generation after generation after generation after generation for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus, after paying the highest price possible, Jesus, after winning a victory that we never had a chance to win on our own, Jesus leading this great victory parade. After all of the celebration is over, Paul is saying, he then doles out treasures. Jesus then looks around and he says, I am going to give my people the most valuable treasures that I can offer them so that it can change their future forever. Verse 11, it says this. With all of this in context, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, which are pastors, and teachers. And usually when we talk about gifts and we talk about the Holy Spirit, which we're going to talk a lot about the Holy Spirit over the next several weeks, but usually when we talk about gifts and we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about some of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I want us to focus these next several weeks on these gifts that Jesus is giving to the church. I believe that these five pillars that all ministry and all kingdom advancement is built upon are so crucial for us to understand, are so crucial for us to operate in. And the reason he chose these gifts, Paul tells us, he gave, again, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? Verse 12 tells us, he gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers these pillars to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Jesus gave these gifts. He gave gifts to men, and the gifts he gave were these five pillars. He gave these gifts to men so that the church could operate at its full strength. And when a church operates at its full strength, it's impossible to stop. He gave these gifts for a reason. And so we have to ask these questions as we study scripture. Um, Worship team, please come. We have to ask these questions as we study scripture. Has the body of Christ been fully built? The obvious answer to that question is no, it hasn't. And if the answer is no, then we need these pillars. Then we need these gifts. Have have we, as the body of Christ, attained a unity of faith fully? No, not yet. And if that's the case, we need these pillars. Have we experienced the fullness of Christ? Well, in a sense, yes, we have individually, but there are many who haven't. So because there are those out there who haven't experienced the fullness of Christ in their life individually, we need these pillars. We need these gifts. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at each pillar individually and see how it applies to us today, where these pillars are working today and how it affects you and how it affects me, how it affects your family, how it affects the church. We're going to discuss the easy ones, and then we're going to discuss some of the hard ones because there are some of these that are a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around and how it's in operation today, but we're going to discuss those as well. But I want you to know this as we prepare for this series. I want you to know that this series and this discussion has absolutely nothing to do with full-time paid ministry roles and titles, okay? That's important because I know that a message like this going down this road here that I believe has the potential to take us to a place spiritually that God wants us to be but also has the potential to allow people to check out where they say, well, I'm not an evangelist, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a teacher, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a prophet, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm not an apostle, so this doesn't apply to me. I'm not a pastor, so this doesn't apply to me. Seems like this is something that maybe you should be teaching at like a minister's conference or something like that. But why would you be teaching that to us? Look, I I want you to know, and this this is going to be the one thing that could create the biggest hindrance to receiving what I believe the Holy Spirit has for us. That when these gifts were given, they weren't just given as titles. They weren't given so that you could be a professional whatever. They were given as gifts to the church so that the church could be equipped to do the ministry that God desires the church to do. These gifts were given not just to the pastor, but what the scriptures say, to each 
one of us. Man, that's good news. That's good news. And when each one of us understand the giftings that God in his grace has given us for a purpose, not just to be defensive, but to be aggressive and to be forcefully advancing the kingdom. When we understand where we fit in this model, in this role, what, what pillar we are supposed to be within the church, then we as a church will begin to operate at full strength. When we have not just two or three pastors, but a church full of pastors. When we not just have a couple of evangelists, but a church full of evangelists. When we not just have somebody giving a prophetic word, but everybody in our church operating and understanding what the prophetic means. When we have people who are determined to be faithful teachers of the word of God not just to their class, or not just to their life group, but to be teachers in every possible moment. Then the church will begin to operate at full strength. And a church at full strength is impossible to stop. And so he gives these to us individually. And <clears throat> I wanna share something here. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, in his book, The Second Jungle Book, which is a follow-up to his original, The Jungle Book, he added a poem, and in this poem, it was the law of the wolves, um, something that the older wolves were supposed to teach the younger wolves. If you've seen the, the recent um, Jungle Book movie that just came out, this, this law up for the wolves is in that movie there, and it says this. It says, now this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky. And the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth forward and back. This is the part I want you to hear. For the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. They say that the wolf is strong because the pack is strong. If the wolf is weak, the pack cannot be strong. We will never be a strong church we will never operate at full strength and live up to our full capacity if we are filled with weak, passive Christians. The strength of the church is shaped by the willingness of a spirit-filled believer, of a spirit-filled individual to embrace the call that Christ has on his or her individual life and his or her willingness to operate in the ministry gifts that Jesus has so generously given to them as an individual. For too long, we've replaced these five pillars with other things, things of our creation, things of our doing, new, more exciting, flashier things like, like talent and ability or, or, or leadership potential, different things like that. But these five pillars, these five gifts that Christ gave, he set in place, he gave those to us because he knew that they would withstand the test of time and they would be able to endure through the pressure of cultural erosion. If the church is going to operate at full strength, it must decide to do everything God's way. We must trust God's plan as better than ours and we have to embrace these five ministry pillars, these five ministry giftings. So this is... This is what we're going to do. We're going to close. If we could have our, our 
guys and girls who are helping us with communion. Um, go ahead and get those things ready. Um, we know that if the church is going to operate at full strength, we must be determined to do everything God's way. And we have to understand that when we get to the point that we operate at full strength, it's a complete rejection of our own talents, our own strength, and our own ability. And it's a full dependence on the victory that King Jesus won. And when we get to that place where we operate at full strength, it's this great reminder that Jesus and not us is leading the victory parade. Amen? And so what we're going to do is we're going to close this message this morning in a time of communion. Jesus tells us to do this often, to do this in remembering him. And so, so what we're going to do is we're going to pass out the communion elements so, so you guys can go ahead and begin to do that at this time. And, and the only thing that we're going to ask is, let's just go ahead and stand. It makes it a little easier to, to hand these out. The only thing that we're going to ask is if, if you are not a believer, if you haven't committed your life fully to Jesus, asked him to be your savior and your king, we just ask you to abstain from this. Um, this is pretty important to us. Um, so if that's you and you don't feel like you're ready to take communion, just go ahead and pass that on. But you don't have to be a member of North Shore or anything to, to partake. And so let me have one of those. You guys can go ahead and begin passing those out at this time. So what we're gonna do, um, while some of this stuff is being passed out, uh, Pastor Dan is going to go ahead and, and lead us in some, in some time of singing here and some time of worship. And then we are going to take these together. So if you grab them, hold them, and just hold on to them, we'll take them together here in just a moment. Go ahead and sing this with us as soon as you get your elements here. I'm calling your grace everlasting. His way 
is the best way. His way is the best way. Even in those moments that we don't fully agree, even in those moments that we don't fully grasp it, we want to make this declaration this morning that His way is the best way. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was telling the disciples that He was going into Jerusalem and that He was going to have to suffer and He was going to have to die. And essentially he was saying, hey, this is God's plan. This is the best way. Peter responds to him. And Peter says this, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus is telling the disciples God's plan. I'm the Savior. I'm coming down. Um, I'm going to give my life for mankind. I have to suffer and die. This is the best way. Peter says, no, it's not. Don't do that. That's stupid. That doesn't make any sense. That, that's never going to happen to you. And this is really the one and only time that, that we see, um, aside from Judas, one of the disciples really outright challenging Jesus' way and saying, no, Jesus, you're wrong. And Jesus doesn't really try to explain it to him, does he? He doesn't, well, Peter, let me, let me tell you the reason why. Let me, let me tell you why we're doing this. Let me, let me explain this to you. He, Peter doesn't, Jesus doesn't do that to Peter. Jesus just simply says, get behind me, Satan. You're acting like the devil right now. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. To operate at full strength, we have to remember where our strength lies. It's in Jesus. To operate at full strength, we have to be willing to do things God's way and not ours. And so we're going to take this communion together. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we have this, this little cracker here um, symbolizing Jesus' bread or Jesus' body. We have this cracker, and, and we take this because Jesus tells us to, but we take this as a reminder that he is our victorious champion, that he is our king, that he is our savior, and our strength is tied intimately with Jesus' sacrifice. And so let's take this, and after we do, let's spend the next 30 seconds just thanking him for who he is and thanking him for his sacrifice. Let's go ahead and do that right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are good. We worship you. Oh, we thank you, Lord. Verse 25 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, and do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And not just the Lord's death, but his resurrection. Saying you are declaring that he's still the king that he's still in control. 
you are declaring that his way is still the best way. And you are recognizing the fact that aside from the shed blood of Jesus, you and I are rendered completely powerless. But because of his shed blood, listen, because of his shed blood, because of the victory that King Jesus won, we have access to more power than we ever realized possible. It's time for us to start operating at full strength. And so because Jesus told us to, because this is Jesus's way and his way is the best way, let's partake of the juice together, symbolizing his command to us. And let's take a couple seconds to thank him. resurrection of Jesus. This is what the full strength of the church is anchored to. This is what, this is the foundation that the pillars are anchored into. The victorious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We've got just a few minutes left, and this is how I want to close. It's kind of untypical to do an altar call after communion, but this is, this is what I want to ask. Because I, I believe a series like this has to be bathed in prayer. I believe that if we are going to be a church that is going to operate at full strength, it's going to come with just a great desire as the deer panteth for the water. And so as we close, um, what I want to do is I just want to take these next couple of minutes and I just want to invite those of you who would to come down to the altar and, and just say, if, if your heart is there, stir me up. Lord, stir my soul. Do that slow, deliberate breath in me. Jesus, I want to be a part of something more. Jesus, I want to be a part of something bigger. Jesus, I want to be a part of something beyond myself. Jesus, I want to be able to, with, with clarity, hear where I fit in the scheme of things. Stir my heart, Lord, stir my soul. Stir my innermost being, Lord Jesus. I want this. I want the Holy Spirit. I want you to stir things up in my life. I want to be a part of something that I've never been a part of. Lord Jesus, I want to be in your army. I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be a believer that is propelling the church forward to operate in full strength. We're going to take just a couple of minutes. We're going to pray. If you're in your seat and you want to pray, go ahead and pray there in your seat. If you want to sing this with us, sing it. Holy Spirit, stir us up. Holy Spirit, stir us up. Justice and praise.